trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, we have an unofficial slogan here. Actually, maybe it is the official slogan. Let me look. Yeah, I have a mug. And it says The Brian Hyde Show. Revel in wrong think. Oh, yeah, it's pretty subversive, right? Actually, I have to give uh, credit to my daughter for coming up with the logo. But uh, the whole revel in wrong think idea, I think it's just an idea whose time has come because we live in a time where free speech, meaning your ability to freely speak your mind, to follow your conscience, is under constant attack. And it, it really comes down to it's not so much, well, it's because those darn Democrats, you know, and the progressives are doing this or that. Really, the divide that, that we find ourselves having to choose, you know, which side of the line am I going to fall on, comes down to the rights of the individual versus the collective. And those who gravitate toward the collective, particularly the, the people who feel like, for some reason, they were born with this prerogative to, to control other people's lives and to direct other people in every action in their lives. No one should act without permission. They're doing everything in their power to basically bring us to heal. So it's not that I want to go out there and look for a fight. It just took me a while, but I figured out, uh, hey, I'm a free man. And I'm trying to convince you, you are a free individual. No one has a right to tell you what to think, what to say, how to feel. So I'm inviting you to uh, revel in wrong think with me. Go ahead. Challenge the narrative. You'll find it healthy. You'll find it worthwhile. But most importantly, you'll find it very liberating. And that's how we were meant to live. So with that in mind, let us dive right into today's show. By the way, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I share wonderful articles and interviews with with various guests. And of course, links to all of that can be found in my show notes. Something I don't mention often, but I'm going to just kind of pump up for a moment today. I also try to find... A thought-provoking, hopefully humorous meme that uh, goes into each show note. Every day there's a different meme, and, you know, some of them are more sick than others, but they're they're all intended to, to help you think. I just, I love the one that I found for today. I don't know who put this together, but the, the kid, Jaden, the kid with the Gadsden flag patch on his backpack and his tri-corner hat, someone took a picture of him walking down the sidewalk and just labeled it, Become ungroomable. And I don't know why, but that one hit a nerve with me. I was like, that is so perfect. It's beautiful. If we're going to strive for something, let's help make our kids as ungroomable and ourselves as ungroomable as possible. Now, having said that, we look around us today and you don't have to look very far to find problems that are plaguing our country. In fact, you don't have to look very far to find lots of people, myself included, who are identifying those problems on a regular basis. But simply pointing out the problems doesn't actually do anything about them. This was the epiphany that I had actually some years ago. I was like, okay, I'm getting really good at pointing these things out. What am I actually doing in in way of offering a solution or something productive that people can do? 
Because identifying solutions, that takes a little more thought and definitely takes more investment of time and effort. So I came across this article yesterday. And I thought, you know, these are some great suggestions. This is from a writer named Michael Ryan. It was published on AmericanThinker.com. It's titled, Scared for Your Country, What You Can and Must Do. Now, Michael Ryan gets right to the point. With crackdowns on speech and religious exercise and brazen indictments against a past president and likely presidential nominee by powers that previously tried to frame him for conspiring with a hostile foreign power, but which have themselves colluded with the enemy, ordinary Americans watch helplessly as they see their republic slipping away before their eyes. But here's his point. They're not helpless. Not at all. What can I do? A young relative recently asked me as we grieved the goings-on. Well, Michael Ryan says plenty, I discovered on reflection. And then he offers what he says just is a partial list of what we concerned citizens can do to rescue and revive the Republic. These are some really solid suggestions, by the way. Number one, educate yourself, which today means finding alternate sources of news and information, particularly with the odd ebb of Fox News as a reliable counterweight to the ubiquitous liberal media. So he says you may want to start with sites like AmericanThinker.com. Secondly, become a tireless advocate for truth, justice, and government accountability. Next, be vocal on social media and among acquaintances about your beliefs and what needs to happen. This next one's important. Back up those beliefs with solid evidence. He also advises run for office or support only candidates who pursue policies that uphold the Constitution the rule of law, national security, prosperity, public safety, healthy choices, and orderly society. If it's not healthy, civil, or compassionate, for instance, it's not healthy, civil, or compassionate, for instance, to encourage or allow people to destroy themselves with drugs on public sidewalks or public parks. Next, he says, agree on a written set of personal and family values and then act on them every day. I've had my friend Tyler on the show before, and, and he, he wrote a personal manifesto of what I believe, what I stand for. I still consider this one of the most impressive exercises in self-reflection and, and really, you know, dialing in and calibrating your moral compass that I've ever seen. And I strongly recommend such a thing for anyone who is, you know, trying to figure out what exactly can I do? Who am I? What do I stand for? When you can answer those questions. It answers a lot of other things like, okay, what direction do I need to go? And you've established who you are and what you stand for. Knowing where to go becomes a lot easier. All right. Next, support alternatives to public education failure and indoctrination. Have the courage to stand up to a misguided mob pushing policies and values you know to be harmful. Monitor what your elected officials at every level are doing and hold them accountable. Join with other people in like-minded organizations to safeguard civil society, individual freedom, and the Constitutional Republic. Moms for Liberty, Parents Defending Education, and more. I would add to that, peoplesrights.org. Support public interest nonprofits and law firms that, that protect freedom of speech, religion, and other liberties enshrined in the Bill of Rights. Work to create and preserve election integrity. 
This one's this one's kind of a harder one because there's there's a lot of pushback on that. But that means voter ID, no ballot harvesting, no drop boxes, no mass mailings of ballots or ballot applications. In fact, you can sign up to be a poll worker or poll observer. Also, don't be fooled by ad hominem, unsupported, irrelevant personal attacks against political rivals. They're a danger to democracy, etc. And don't get fooled into thinking elections or the republic's future is about personalities instead of policies. Next, he uses a quote from Jason Sneed, executive director of the Honest Elections Project. The nation needs dedicated volunteers to run the polls, and officials frequently report sometimes critical shortages of poll workers. So the point here is there are almost endless opportunities to get involved in preserving the republic. And however fashionable or comforting it used to be to live above the fray, you can no longer afford the luxury. Neither can your country afford your indifference. You have no choice but to be political. That one stings a little bit because I really try to rid myself of as much politics as possible. Perhaps for the first time in your life, but certainly for the rest in your life, rest of your life. Here's the only caution I would add to that. Politics can become almost a religion for some people. And I would use it as an example. We know people who are very reasonable, rational, you know, in their day-to-day life, good people. But when politics comes up, they transmogrify into a caricature of themselves. They start frothing at the mouth. They get very animated. Okay? There's a, in other words, there's an unhealthy degree to which we can become fixated on politics. But I do agree with the author here that you've got to become relentless in pursuit of your deeply held beliefs in the public square. That's not easy for everybody. You know the old saw, you only live once? Well, he says, don't believe it. Even aside from the afterlife, you already live two lives. You have a private life and a public life. Your private life is, of course, all about you, your family, your friends, your occupations and avocations. But your public life is about everything and everyone else. And that means your community, your nation, your state, the world, the issues you chime in or pitch in on, the organizations and causes you choose to further, the strangers you meet, even those you don't, in the case of the missionary you support, halfway across the globe. There's another name for this. It's called public virtue. We don't hear that term very often, but it's it's one that's worth getting your mind around. I'm going to come back to this article in just a few moments. Got to take a very quick break. Back after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I just want to thank our sponsors quickly. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, TMCPNation.com, ClimbingUpward.com. That reminds me, I need to get John Pulver back on the show here soon. And also QuiltAndSew.com. All right, so I'm sharing this article from Michael Ryan. If you're scared for your country, here's what you can and must do. I think he has some really solid suggestions, and and uh, I just want to follow up with 10 things he suggests that you simply must do in your personal life that will actually strengthen the country you love. Now, again, these are things that are within our power, okay? It's not like, seat better people on the Supreme Court. Well, gee, I don't really have a lot of say in that. But here are some suggestions of things you can do. 
Number one, take good care of yourself. Self-care and healthy lifestyles help hold down health care costs, increase self-reliance, and make the whole country stronger. Number two, know what you believe. If we all did that, it would prevent national mood swings, erratic election results, and back-and-forth public policy shifts that drive businesses and foreign allies crazy. As they say, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Number three, be willing to change your beliefs if facts warrant. You can and should adhere to solid core principles, but be open-minded at the same time. Otherwise, you're chasing a parked car. Number four, know how our system of government works. Your knowledge of it is the only way it can work. Know the Bill of Rights, study the government structure, understand a government's responsibilities and limitations. Attend county and city meetings, follow your state legislature online and in person if possible, observe Congress on C-SPAN. I'm going to use this as an opportunity to plug the Center for Self-Governance. If you haven't checked them out before, Google that name, Center for Self-Governance marvelous organization that has some very solid uh, lessons on how to become a better, more effective citizen. All right, number five, keep up on news and newsmakers. But here's the caveat. Be your own fact checker slash lie detector. Check multiple news sources and perspectives and make up your own mind about who's right. Tyrants and tricksters rely on your being uninformed. Number six, engage others civilly. Listen to others from a place of respect and caring, even if you disagree with them. Walk away from online name-calling. Let your elected representatives know you want them to be civil with one another and that you vote. Number seven, get involved in civic clubs and projects. That's the foundation of America. If you don't work to make your community and country better, who will? Look into Rotary and other civic clubs, some of which have youth affiliates. Number eight, volunteer for a candidate or run yourself. Freedom isn't a spectator sport. Get in the game. Number nine, don't follow the herd. Think for yourself. Research shows that as the crowd size increases, its proportion of informed individuals decreases. Think of that the next time the wildebeest horde bolts past you. By the way, another great rule of thumb, this one courtesy of Paul Rosenberg. When you're with a crowd and they start chanting... That's time to get out of there. Because the more the crowd starts to chant, the more it uh, transforms from thinking individuals into a mob. Number 10, spread love and kindness. Without them, we get nowhere. With them, we can get anywhere. Michael Ryan says, you have the rare and precious privilege to live in the freest society in history. The unique American system of self-governance makes this nation exceptional, but the price is eternal vigilance and concrete action by those in charge, meaning you. So if you feel helpless as our republic's basic principles, such as equality under the law, give way to an arbitrary politicization and weaponization of the government, the very definition of tyranny, he says don't feel that way because it's not true. You are anything but helpless. But here's the key. Focus on what you can control, which under our system of governance means the government itself. Now, some may say, well, that sounds awfully optimistic, but I think it's a, it's a great place to start. Now, building on this, 
Let's talk about how truth isn't just a matter of being right. (laughs) I'm right, you're wrong. No, it's not a contest like that. Truth, as Andrea Whitberg explains, is essential to the function of a republic. That's why right now the left is working so hard to manipulate it. She says a democratic republic cannot work when a corrupt politician holds allegiance to interests other than those of the electorate. And the media's primary role should be to expose that corruption to the American people. Instead, today, the Washington Post continued the cover-up, confessing to Biden's small crimes while ignoring his treasonous ones. Biden is very slowly but steadily being exposed as a liar about something fundamental to his presidency. And his fundamental lie has been that he has denied to the American people that he was in business with his son, with the two men receiving millions from governments and companies with interests antithetical to America. So leftists have to do damage control, and funnily enough, the uh, Washington Post's damage control came out on the same day as a conservative article lambasting the media for ignoring Biden's lies. On the conservative side, writing at The Federalist, Mark Hemingway published a well-sourced, very detailed essay about Biden's lies and the media's cover-up. The title and subtitle tell the story. If the media insisted on calling Trump a liar, that standard must be applied to Biden's corruption lies. One of the distinguishing features of Trump's presidency was an aggressive press corps that felt obligated to call out Trump's lies. So why won't they apply the same standard to Biden, who is inarguably a world-class liar? Now, Andrea Woodberg says the article opens with headlines from past headlines from the MSM, insisting Trump was and is, was and is a liar. She says, I've got my own take, which is that Trump puffs. In advertising, puffery means making claims that are obvious exaggerations, such as saying, our toilet paper is the best toilet paper ever. That's how Trump operates. As he boasts about his perfect phone calls or his magnificent whatever it is. Well, Andrea Woodberg says, so far as I know, and Trump certainly had the media scrutinizing his every utterance, Trump has never lied about things consequential to American politics. Meanwhile, writes Hemingway, Biden has a long history of blatant lies. That is, he doesn't just exaggerate with terms like huge or perfect or greatest. He just lies about facts. Many of Biden's lies are self-promoting, such as the false claim that he graduated at the top of his class at porn school. Or porn school. What a nice slip there. Law school. Sorry, I was looking at corn pop. And anyway stumble but the or the risible assertion that he terrified that bad dude corn pop but a lot of his lies have important political resonance now as noted we're learning the truth regarding his lies about his own dealings with his son especially when it comes to ukraine including biden's own boast about getting victor shokin fired you've probably already been tracking biden's consequential political lies so she says i recommend you read hemingway's article for any lies or details you've forgotten and yes she does link to it So what matters for the purpose of this post is Hemingway's core point, which is the same media that couldn't stand Trump's bloviating and to make up their own lies about him, Russia, 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 they keep ignoring every Biden deviation from truth, whether it's about corn pop or Ukraine. But here's what's so funny. On the same day that Hemingway called out the media, Glenn Kessler at the Washington Post finally admitted that Biden does have a little bit of a credibility problem, but only when it comes to inconsequential personal stories. The word lie only shows up once when when Kessler says Biden's critics allege that he had lied. Now, just as it was true with Hemingway's article, 
Kessler's title tells the tale. Biden loves to retell certain stories. Some aren't credible. See, they're just a little hard to believe, but they're, they're not really lies. Now, he's careful to avoid any mention of Hunter Biden. Instead, Kessler only addresses Biden's personal narratives. And he begins by assuring his readers that Biden tells these tales solely in an attempt to connect his life story with his audience. Biden simply simply has empathy overload. And then Kessler examines the credibility gap in the following stories. The tale of the fire in his house. The tale of the Amtrak conductor. The tale of the gay men in suits kissing. The tale of his civil rights arrest. Tales of a heroic uncle in the family hospital. Are you starting to see the pattern? We'll come back to Andrea Widberg's article here in just a few moments. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I was sharing this article from Andrea Widberg from AmericanThinker.com about the curious double standard. Oh, everything Trump said was a lie. And yet, I think Andrea, you know, she makes a pretty good distinction here. There were things that were Trump, and it's very clear, he, he definitely bloviated and intended to exaggerate. But as far as lying about matters of substance... I can't think of uh, I can't think of anything where he you know out and out tried to deceive the American people. Now Joe Biden, not so much. And when you when you think about all the times he 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 tries to talk about you know again the fire in his house, the Amtrak conductor, all these other stories, she says the sad thing is that regular Washington Post readers, having read the article, almost certainly believe that they possess the perfect defense when some crazed conservative says that Biden lies. He's not really a liar, they tell themselves and each other. He's just empathetic to the point of deviating from the truth. That's all. It's the Republicans who are liars when they claim that Biden and his son willingly sold out America for a profit. All actual evidence be damned. It does make me wonder. I know James Howard Kunstler has, has been pretty insistent. We are going to see impeachment proceedings we're going to see you know impeachment articles introduced because of this corruption and yeah i i don't like biden and i think we'd probably be better off to see him and his handlers especially removed from office but that's the problem i think the guy's just a figurehead i don't think he's actually running things for crying out loud but didn't he just get lost at his press conference yesterday where where do i go i feel bad in the sense that uh, I would feel sad to see a a dementia patient confused in public and trying to find their way around. Now, the fact that that dementia patient happens to be the president of the United States, well, that's that's kind of an added level of tragedy. But essentially, the White House is a very high-end nursing home in some ways. Anyhow. All right, I'm going to shift gears here. I'm looking at some of the growing economic uncertainty. I'm sure you're feeling it as well. Man, checking out gas prices. Right now, we're holding steady at about 4 bucks a gallon, which is still insanely high. But it could be worse. For instance, uh, my son drives a little Volkswagen diesel, and I just watched diesel jump to uh, over 5 bucks a gallon at some of the, the closer gas stations here. Holy cow. And yet, I, I have to wonder... 
You know, how would we weather really tough economic times? Could we handle a Great Depression or something akin to that? Which brings us to an article. This is from uh, Benjamin Williams. Were Americans really better off during the Great Depression? Now, he says, in the ever-evolving world of social media, uh, trends rather, TikTok has seen its share of fascinating and sometimes perplexing content. But lately, a concerning trend has emerged where some TikTokers are romanticizing and downplaying the Great Depression. I guess I don't spend much time on there. But anyway, it's, it's a pivotal period of economic struggle in American history, and influencers on the platform are making bold claims about the financial conditions during that era and drawing questionable comparisons to the present day. Numerous creators have jumped on the bandwagon, asserting that Americans during the Great Depression earned more than today's average salary. One individual boldly stated, in order to be making an average salary that's on par with what the average American was making in the lowest depths of the Great Depression in the year 2022, you'd need to be making $95,000. Yeah, that doesn't sound quite right, does it? Another influencer took it even further, saying, we are currently in the greatest depression in American history and insisted that employed Americans in 1933 made an average of $4,200 annually, which would also be around $95,000 in today's dollars. But Benjamin Williams says these claims require careful examination and fact-checking. While they may seem captivating, they are, in fact, quite misleading. The figures cited in the TikToks are based on historical data from the Internal Revenue Service. However, they conveniently omit a crucial detail. The IRS report from 1933 does mention an average salary of $4,218.40 for taxable returns. But this only includes a subset of 1.7 million individuals. That's hardly representative of the entire population. The average salary during the Great Depression was approximately $1,045, which adjusted for inflation in 2023 would amount to $24,526.07. So this starkly contradicts the inflated numbers presented in the TikToks, which mislead viewers into believing that people during the Great Depression had higher earnings than the average salary today. Now, not stopping at salary comparisons, another TikToker brought up the issue of the minimum wage, claiming if it had remained tied to inflation, it would be $52 per hour today. However, this assertion is also inaccurate. The minimum wage was never designed to be adjusted for inflation. And the federal minimum wage of 25 cents in 1938 would only equate to 5.43 in today's dollars. Christopher Clark, an assistant professor of economics at Washington State University, has been observing this TikTok trend and shares his perspective on the matter. He says, by a long shot, most folks are genuine when making these claims. Viewing the videos or sharing it with friends, they feel the economy is unfair and they found a narrative that validates those sentiments. Now, Clark points out that while the sentiment behind the claims may stem from genuine concerns about their economic conditions, it's essential to ensure the accuracy of the information being disseminated. Amidst the misleading TikTok trend, it's crucial to revisit the somber realities of the Great Depression. This period, which commenced with the 1929 stock market crash, plunged the nation into an economic abyss. Unemployment soared to unprecedented levels, peaking at around 25% in 1933. Poverty became widespread. Countless families struggled to put food on the table and keep a roof over their heads. The economist Murray Rothbard noted average weekly earnings fell by over 40% during the Depression and real weekly earnings fell by over 
homelessness became a, par- a pressing issue, with many people forced to live in makeshift shanty towns known as Hoovervilles. Soup kitchen, kitchens and bread lines became common sights, illustrating the desperation for even the most basic necessities. Families were torn apart. Children were compelled to work to contribute to the household's income. The emotional and psychological toll on the nation's citizens was immense. One study noted that the suicide rate increased from 18 per 100,000 in 1928 to 22.1 per 100,000 in 1932. Now, for comparison, it was 14.1 in 2021. Since the Great Depression, Benjamin Williams says, we've come a long way. Today, we enjoy a level of comfort and convenience that was unimaginable in the 1930s. As Professor Clark astutely pointed out, we've expanded air conditioning, refrigeration, central heating, indoor plumbing, motor vehicle ownership, interstate highways, penicillin, improved cancer and diabetic treatments. I mean, reheat your two-day-old leftovers from your fridge in a microwave in 60 seconds and bask knowing such conveniences and luxuries did not exist 50 years ago. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone in America today is living a perfectly comfortable life. There were still countless improvements that can be made. But the point is that many Americans still are in poverty, and many are still homeless. But we cannot fix any prevailing economic problems if we're operating on false data and assumptions. That is what makes this trend of romanticizing and downplaying the Great Depression so concerning. It's essential for social media users to be discerning and critical of content they encounter, especially when it involves historical events. By recognizing the realities of the Great Depression, we can pay homage to the resilience and strength of our ancestors and strive to learn from history to build a more informed and compassionate future. Interesting stuff. Look, I, you know, I don't want to get all doomer. I'm not trying to black pill anybody here. I do sometimes think about, you know, what if we are headed into something economically that would rival the Great Depression or even surpass it in terms of the econo- economic upheaval? And I don't say that, you know, for the sake of, wow, wouldn't that be cool? I think it would be really hard. Most of us, myself included, have a very comfortable standard of living. You know, I'm, I, I have not been afflicted with great material wealth, although I consider myself very wealthy in other ways. But uh, like most people, I have to worry about how I'm going to pay the bills and so forth. And yep, money issues are definitely a stress on pretty much a day-to-day basis. But my quality of life is pretty good. I can't complain. Things are quite comfortable. Air-conditioned comfort, you know, heated comfort. Uh, never, uh, never, I'm not missing too many meals. I am losing some weight, by the way. I don't know. You may or may not notice it next time you bump into me, but um, my kids got me started on, on the whole keto diet, and um, all I can say is, holy cow, that stuff works. But my point is simply this. If we were headed for tougher times, would you have the resilience mentally, emotionally, spiritually, to tighten your belt and make it through such times. I want to believe I would be capable of doing it, but I I actually think it's the kind of question that we probably should have sussed out somewhat ahead of time rather than when we find ourselves going, oh boy, now what do we do? As always, I'm hoping for the best, but I'd like to be prepared for the worst. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Got a couple great articles I'm going to share with you. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and highlight the article of the day right now just because I will not have time to present it. This is actually a pretty lengthy anthology from uh, Lawrence W. Reed. I call him Larry, but he's, it's because he asked me to call him Larry. Uh, for a couple of years, I had the privilege of producing a weekly podcast uh, for, for him. Um, Larry is uh, the president emeritus of the, of the Foundation for Economic Education, a wonderful human being. And, and probably one of the most effective defenders and promoters of liberty that I've met in my lifetime. Really, this guy is a statesman through and through. And so I'm including a link to the Foundation for Economic Education's website where they have a downloadable anthology called Mavericks and Misfits, Nonconformists to Change the World for Better or Worse. And this is one of the things that makes Larry such a powerful um, ambassador for freedom is he is a veteran storyteller and can relate the stories of individuals and, and historical events with, with great accuracy, but a very keen eye for the principles and the lessons involved. So I, I want to recommend this to you. Look, we've got a long weekend ahead of us. If you've got some time to sit down and read, click on that, that link I provide in my show notes. Download the e-copy of Mavericks and Misfits, Nonconformists to change the world for better or worse, and get acquainted with some of the people who shifted history by not conforming to what everybody else was doing. Learn from the ones who were bad, don't do what they did, <laughs> but learn from the ones who were good and maybe consider following their example. I find that uh, I, I reserve some of my greatest admiration. For the nonconformist, Jaden, the kid with the tricorner hat and the Gadsden flag patch on his backpack, that's a great example. 12 year old nonconformist. And I think he deserves the accolades that he's getting right now for having the wherewithal and knowing his rights well enough to stand up for them rather than just knuckle under to, well, it's policy that you can't have something that we think is disruptive and connected to slavery, but it clearly was not. How embarrassing for educators who would put themselves in that position, you know, for virtue signaling purposes and then have to walk it back. In fact, they didn't just walk it back. They, they ran it back at a full sprint. That was also kind of satisfying. All right, I want to move on to another article here. This is uh, last one for the day. I make use of Airbnbs when traveling, and I'm really thankful. For I, I love an Airbnb because sometimes I just don't want to stay in a hotel or a motel. No offense, there are some nice ones, and I've stayed at some, some hotels that I was like, wow, this is, this is really top-notch. But also stayed at some that I was like, ugh, I'll be sleeping on top of the bed tonight. <laughs> Maybe I'll cover myself with towels to stay warm. It just, it just had a grungy feel. Airbnbs, on the other hand, have that kind of home feel, and uh, they've been almost uniformly positive experiences. But there's a problem that comes along with this. And Charles Hugh Smith actually is, he has a great explanation here of how short-term vacation rentals like Airbnb have destroyed America's resort towns. He says, it turns out society isn't just the sum total of the Fed goosing maximum shareholder values. People actually have to live in the corrupt, bifurcated, distorted ghetto the Fed and maximizing shareholder value 
have created. And he says, it's an old story manifesting now in new ways. The rich, buoyed by inherited wealth and access to credit, find a locale with the qualities they desire, and they buy the choicest properties for their own use and a surrounding band of nearby properties so they won't have to be bothered by the bottom 99%. Now, this story has a far more destructive chapter generated by the boom in short-term vacation rentals. The uber-wealthy don't need more money, but they're trained like hamsters in a lab to seek ways to maximize their income and capital gains. So things like Airbnb et al. are highly attractive investments to the wealthy and their money, money managers, the hedge funds, the private equity managers, family wealth advisors, and so forth. Residential real estate that can be converted to short-term vacation rentals is well within reach of the top 10% households who own between 80 and 90% of all income-producing assets such as housing rentals, stocks, bonds, and business equity. As the Federal Reserve has distorted credit markets with historically unprecedented low interest rates and excess liquidity, the resulting asset bubbles widened the income wealth gap between the top 10% who already owned most of the assets soaring in value and the bottom 90% who at best owned a family home with a mortgage. The top 10% saw super low mortgage rates and the plump returns on short-term vacation rentals and rushed to snap up any properties that could be converted from long-term rentals to short-term vacation rentals to get a share of the post-pandemic price-insensitive revenge spending we need a vacation bonanza. Charles Hugh Smith says this mass conversion of long-term rentals for workers into vacation rentals has social and economic consequences. It has bifurcated America's desirable towns into luxe enclaves for the haves and ghettos for the working have-nots. It was all fun and game seeking to maximize shareholder value and ride the next bubble to ever greater wealth and income, but the consequence is the destruction of the nation's social and economic fabric. Now, I think about this. Uh, my, my biological dad uh, was born and grew up in uh, a part of Wyoming not too far from Jackson Hole. He has a lot of friends there, and sometimes they, they will go and visit. He and his brother will go visit Jackson Hole is virtually impossible to live in unless you are extremely wealthy. And when I say impossible to live in, I mean the, the rent is absolutely out of control. It's, it is so high. You hear New York City, you know, rents. Oh, yeah, they're paying 4500 bucks a month for a tiny one-bedroom apartment with a toilet in the living room. You know, I mean, just insane. This is how Jackson Hole is. But then again, it's a resort town. And the people who work there, the people who are part of the service industry, can't afford to rent in that town. My daughter actually went there with a friend here just a few weeks ago and was telling me about how they, they stopped for breakfast. They didn't go anywhere fancy. 30 bucks for breakfast. Anyway, Charles Hugh Smith says, I asked longtime correspondent W.S., who has witnessed the transformation in Colorado, to describe the reality generated by the mass conversion of long-term rentals to short-term vacation rentals. His account says Airbnb has devastated Colorado's resort towns. It's always been expensive to live in places that wealthy people decided they wanted to visit regularly. Real estate speculators figure out where the money is quickly enough, buy up property, subdivide it, and sell it to their friends who build second homes like the single-family castles in Beaver Creek and Vail. 
They build condos and duplexes and sell them to less wealthy folks who want to live in these places and to small investors who rent them to the people who do the actual work in these communities. Our teachers, fire and police, or police and firefighters, rather, the hotel and restaurant and small business operators and their staff, the essential services folks that nobody thinks much about until one day a pandemic comes along. In Colorado, the attraction for almost 50 years has been downhill skiing. And while rents were always higher than most places, the folks that moved up to the mountains and worked at the ski co and surrounding small businesses generally skied for free. A season pass was a more common benefit than a health care plan, and the locals lived to ride snowboards, skis. It was a worthwhile trade-off. That era ended completely with Airbnb. Over the past few years, virtually all of the ho- locals housing in Vale, the duplexes in nearby Eagle Vale, the houses in Edwards, everything in the upper Eagle River Valley where the locals lived, has been purchased often sight unseen by hedge funds, private capital, and wealthy full- and part-time homeowners. And it's all immediately been turned into short-term rental properties like Airbnb, Verbo, etc. So why rent a two-bedroom apartment to a teacher for $1,500 a month when you can Airbnb the same 40-year-old unit for $2,500 a week? Except now there are literally no housing units available. Oh, a few pop up every now and then, but for $3,750 to $4,000 a month? Since the work at the home class has bid up the price of everything in resort towns with fast internet and all of them have it. Even if they don't, Starlink is $120 a month for 50 to 200 Mbps connectivity. Local teachers with master's degree start at $45,000 a year fresh out of school. But a $3,750 per month rental requires about $11,000 to move in, first and last, plus the security deposit. Annual rent comes out to $45,000. That's the gross pay for new hires which we need annually as our experienced educators retire or sell their homes they bought a few years ago for huge gains and move elsewhere. We can't hire teachers. We can't hire snowplow operators who are sort of essential in the high country. We can't hire substitute teachers at $100 a day. We can't hire bus drivers. You see where he's going with this? Interesting. Well, I recommend take a look at Charles Hughes Smith's article. It's linked in today's show notes. Show notes for September 1st, 1st rather, 2023. You can find them at thebrianhideshow.com. If you find value in them, consider subscribing. I'd love to send you a copy each time I do the show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.